0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. This morning's talk is titled Preaching on Heaven and its Peace. And this is the final talk within our intellectual retreat on grace and peace, St. Augustine as spiritual master. In terms of putting this within perspective, you can think about how Friday evening, Father Ephraim said that one of the key ideas about St. Augustine as spiritual master is preaching. And then we also saw in terms of Augustine's Confessions, Book 6, that when he had St. Ambrose as his spiritual master or spiritual father, he was very much by, influenced by St. Ambrose's public preaching. St. Augustine actually had very little uh, quality time one-on-one with St. Ambrose, it seems. St. Ambrose particularly influenced St. Augustine because of the public preaching. And you can think about how the idea that St. Augustine was helped with, as he says in Book 6 of the Confessions, was about how the human being is made to the image of God. St. Augustine had a materialist understanding of God and of his image because of his Manichaean experiences, and St. Ambrose was able to clear that away through the preaching of the faith. Now, I want us then, in this talk on preaching on heaven and its peace, uh, to think a little bit more in terms of St. Augustine as spiritual master, precisely in terms of his preaching. In Dr. Clemens' second talk yesterday, uh, he focused on two texts from St. Augustine, the Interationes and Psalms and the Tractates on First John. Well, those are all fancy ways of talking about preaching. So in terms of the preaching on the Psalms and preaching on the first letter of St. John. Okay, so just again and again, we can think about St. Augustine especially helping us through his preaching. Today, we have about five million extant words from Augustine about 5 million. And some of those are in these classic texts that have influenced Western civilization, so in terms of Confessions, city of God, on the Trinity. But in the past few decades, scholars have begun remedying the neglect in scholarship precisely in the activity that St. Augustine mostly did day to day, and that was preaching. In Peter Brown's epilogue to the new edition, the 2000 edition of his authoritative biography, Augustine of Hippo, uh, we see that there's a special turn to sermons, particularly in terms of the Dobo sermons. So there was a recent discovery of these new sermons. Peter Brown writes of the change in his own perception by taking Augustine as preacher more seriously. For instance, the Dobo sermons make abundantly claim abundantly plain, that when Augustine preached, his statements were by no means the ex-Cathedra statements of the representative of a securely established Catholic hierarchy. Brilliant, urgent, and at times intransient, his sermons are better described as dialogues with the crowd. They are often inconclusive dialogues. One senses in them the constant presence of the unpersuaded, the indifferent, and the downright disobedient. Right. Now, so in terms of uh, what was St. Augustine's style in his preaching? Okay, And you know, different preachers have different styles. Father William Harmless, a Jesuit from Creighton who passed some years ago, wrote an influential article titled, A Love Supreme, Augustine's Jazz of Theology. And what he does is he talks about St. Augustine's preaching precisely through that metaphor of jazz. Okay, so I don't know if you like jazz music, uh, that there are qualities of his preaching very much like jazz. So, let's think about this. Uh, Jazz often has a repetition of movements uh, that, uh, that would have a familiarity and so that you have this repetition, okay, an enjoyable repetition. Preachers basically have about five different themes okay? So in some sense, every preacher has go-to ideas. Uh, Augustine, who has all this preaching, he has his go-to themes, okay? Grace and peace, okay? These would be some of the most important themes that he's running in in his preaching. Another thing for St. Augustine, like jazz, is that there's an extemporaneous quality, so that once you have, you know, the the rhythm, the, the movements, then you can do improv, okay? So in terms of different types of extemporaneity. and St. Augustine did not preach with a text. He preached with the sacred scriptures. The scripture was read. He had already prayed and prepared. He got up and in prayer he preached. Okay, so there's this extemporaneity. And then in terms of the movements that he would be In dialogue with his people because he could see what how they reacted to the different things that he was saying and then he would go in particular directions based upon his understanding of what the people were thinking okay so uh, so then to consider that there is this because in in jazz uh, sometimes the audience will you know interrupt with applause or something like this and then and then the the jazz artist you know who is uh, a master at this can go in the direction where he senses the the crowd is. Now, we then, uh, in an English-speaking world, are blessed to have much of Augustine now in English. And particularly in terms of preaching, Father Edmund Hill, a Dominican friar from the English province, and Sister Maria Bolding, a Benedictine sister, have done a great amount of work uh, for us to be able to read Augustine And we don't uh, don't have the same sorts of resonance that Augustine as a Latin orator uh, would be communicating to his people, Um, but we still, it's not bad, okay? It's better than nothing. And Augustine may have preached over 6,000 times, and we have over 900 sermons, okay? Over 900 sermons. The homiletic corpus is traditionally divided into some 580 sermons to the people. His Tractatus, so the Tractates, which comprise 124 on the Gospel of John and 10 on the first letter of John. Uh, the 205 treatments of all 150 psalms, and almost all of them are recorded live. Okay, so there were these secretaries there in the church and they would take uh, Augustine's preaching down. So most, most of them are that way. Um, and so... Uh, and then uh, these these, collect- these uh, writings, or you know, really sermons on the Psalms, were called Enerationes by Erasmus in the 16th century. Okay. Uh, when the Benedictine monks of St. Moore edited the sermons to the people in the late 17th century, they subdivided these sermons into four collections on the scriptures, on the liturgical seasons, on the saints, and on diverse topics. Now in terms of Augustine uh you know we thought about his style in terms of preaching what was his goal you know what did he really want in all this did he want to show off did he want to uh to burst in pride no okay he had experience as an orator where basically uh his he was being paid to show off and that he uh was bursting with pride uh, and then felt awful uh, because he knew that these things were lies. My favorite line from all of St. Augustine's preaching is this. I don't want to be saved without you. I don't want to be saved without you. And so then you can think about grace and peace that St. Augustine is. Uh, has had this powerful experience in his life of God's grace and God's peace, and he found it to be saving. And so now as a preacher, he he knows that he wants to communicate God's grace, God's peace, salvation to God's people. I don't want to be saved without you. So in this Thomistic Institute lecture on preaching on heaven and its peace, I want us uh, uh, to think about uh, what it means to be a preacher of peace. And then we'll have different examples from Augustine on this. And then we'll move to heaven and particularly the bodily reality of heaven. The bodily reality of heaven. And I've given you one sermon as uh, something that you can take home with you. Uh, and then, what we'll do for those uh, also listening uh, through the SoundCloud, or you know, those people out there, um, that will will be able to have different quotations from Saint Augustine and make comments during this lecture. So you you don't have to have the handout, All right, All Right now, so in terms of being a preacher of peace, Saint Augustine preached many, many, many times in his cathedral of Hippo Regius. And the cathedral's name was Basilica Pachis, the Basilica of Peace. Sometimes, when he would preach about Donatism, the schism that was very much hurting the body of Christ in North Africa, he would talk about the Pax Catholica, the Pax Catholica, the Catholic peace. Now, for those with uh, the sense of Roman history, you could have in mind something about the Pax Romana, which had been long ago from the time of Augustine's preaching. The empire no longer experienced that Pax Romana. What Augustine was doing was talking about the Pax Catholica, that the Catholic Church offers God's peace in a particular way. Okay, again, it's this idea of the city of God is, on one hand, the city of God in pilgrimage, with the spes, the the hope that is within it, tending toward heaven, Jerusalem. And the word Jerusalem, St. Augustine, came to mean vision of peace. Okay, so in terms of, sometimes he called it earlier on, city of peace. But then he preferred a, a, a Greek etymology, vision of peace. And that's where the res, the reality is. So from spes to res, and that the, uh, that the preacher then would be able to communicate this to the people. So peace is, at the, is integral to the sense of what the church is. Okay, what the church is. Now, St. Augustine, besides preaching in Hippo, would go out. He would make various travels. And we can keep in mind how, in terms of peace, that he, he had a sense for political instability. And he, at times, would preach what would maybe today be called peace and justice, okay, or justice and peace. And one of the most famous descriptions of this is on christian Doctrine, Book 4, when he talks about how there are three different styles or manners of speaking. And, uh, the, the, uh, and then there's the grand manner, okay? So in terms of that, that victory. Uh, so listen to St. Augustine talking about his experience preaching for peace. The Grand Manor, however, by its very weight, frequently makes the voices hush, makes the tears gush. Well, anyway, I was once in Caesarea of Mauritania, trying to dissuade the people from their local civil war, or rather something more than civil, which they called the Mob. For it is not only citizens, but also neighbors, brothers, indeed parents and sons, divided into two parties, ritually fighting each other with stones at a certain time of the year, and each of them killing anyone he could. And I, indeed, And I did indeed speak and act in the grand manner, to the best of my ability, in order to root out such a cruel and inveterate evil from their hearts and habits and rid them of it by my speaking. But still I did not consider I had achieved anything when I heard them applauding me, but only when I saw them weeping. Their applause only showed that they were being instructed and delighted, while their tears indicated that they were being swayed. When I observed these, I was confident, even before the outcome confirmed it, that I had beaten that monstrous custom, handed down from their fathers and grandfathers and their remote ancestors which was laying hostile siege to their breasts, or rather was in full possession of them. I soon finished the sermon, and turned their hearts and tongues to giving thanks to God. And here we are, something like eight years or more later, and by the good favor of Christ, nothing of the sort has since been attempted. There are many other experiences which have taught me that people have shown by their groans rather than their shouts, sometimes also by their tears, and finally by the change in their lives, what the grand of a wise man's speech has achieved in them. Okay, so this is where in terms of this, the, the reality of conflict in the world, uh, and that the end of conflict in the world begins because of God's word that takes root in the human heart. Okay, God's word that takes root in the human heart. Right so so this is where in terms of that St Augustine as a preacher of peace wants people to understand how that that really for Christian preaching it's inseparable from peace and this leads us to the peace of heaven okay so in one sermon sermon 101 when he was preaching in Carthage so visiting there at the Fossas Basilica he says Such then should Christ's apostles be preachers of the gospel, not greeting on the road, that is not looking for something else, but proclaiming the gospel out of genuine brotherly love. Let them come to the house and say, peace be to this house. They don't only say it with their lips, they pour out what they are full of. They preach peace and they have peace. They are not like those of whom it is said, peace, peace, and there is no peace, Jeremiah 8. What's the meaning of peace, peace, and there is no peace? They preach it and don't have it. They praise and don't love it. They say and they don't do. As for you, though, be sure you accept peace, whether Christ is being proclaimed casually or with sincerity. Okay, so this is where um, sometimes people are, in some sense, too dependent upon the preacher and the preacher's life. I don't know if I like that preacher in terms of, uh, well, St. Paul knew this. In his letter to the Philippians, you know, he knows that some people preach uh, Jesus for different motives uh, and whether in pretense or truth, let Christ be proclaimed. And so, you know, yes, a preacher should actually communicate the peace in life. But if you're the one listening to the preacher, call to mind that's especially Christ preaching and to be able to get something from Christ preaching now this is where also in terms of of weaving different biblical images in in his preaching, he preaches on the parable of the prodigal son. Okay, so Luke fifteen, it's one of the uh, one of the most beloved parables of our Lord. Now, uh, in terms of just stepping back and an insight that I read last year uh, this month. Uh, Father Jordan Zajak, uh, who was ordained a priest last May, wrote his last Dominicana post uh, right before he was ordained a priest uh, last May in terms of the image of the of the prodigal son that uh, the prodigal son had gone away to that far country, that region of dissimilitude, and that, uh, that uh, and he said, "Well, what about if he goes back to that region of dissimilitude?" And he says, basically, that's my life, because now I'm being sent back there. I'm being sent back there by the Lord as his priest. And that very idea is exactly what St. Augustine preaches, precisely in how the parable of the prodigal son works out in the details. He orders him to be given a ring as a pledge of the Holy Spirit and shoes for his feet in readiness for the gospel of peace so that the feet of one announcing good news might be beautiful. So these are images uh, from St. Paul. So in terms of the gospel of peace is from the letter to the Ephesians to uh, have, be shod with the gospel of peace in terms of spiritual warfare. And then in terms of how beautiful are the feet of the one bringing good news, which is in Isaiah that St. Paul picks up in Romans. The point is that the, when, the, when the lost son comes back home, He's given shoes to be sent out, to be a, a preacher of peace, and then you can think about uh, our own way of, of of experiencing God's mercy. That God wants us to be equipped with the uh, with the shoes with with to be shod for the gospel of peace to those who do not know peace. Okay, so for, and that's true for all of us who have experienced God's mercy. To be able to be sent out and to tell people in this world about the gift of peace that endures forever in heaven. Okay, another example, St. Augustine, when he's preaching on Ephesians chapter 6, peace to the brethren and charity with faith. Um, So listen to the apostle, the very promoter of faith, the great champion of grace. Listen to him saying, peace to the brethren and charity with faith. Three great things he mentioned, peace, charity, faith. He began at the end, ended at the beginning, okay? Peace to the brethren and charity with faith. The beginning, you see, lies in faith, the end in peace. Those are the three things mentioned by the apostle. Peace to the brethren and charity with faith. Peace to the brethren. Where does peace come from? And charity. Where does charity come from? With faith. If you don't believe, you see, you don't love. So the apostle said, beginning like that from the end and coming back to the beginning, peace, charity with faith. Let us though say, faith, charity, peace. Believe, love, reign. If you believe, you see, and don't love, you still haven't distinguished your faith from those who trembled and said, "And said, we know who you are, the Son of God. You then love, because charity with faith will itself escort you right through to peace. What, what peace? True peace, complete peace, solid peace, carefree peace, where there's no disease, no enemy. That peace is the final goal of all our good desires. Charity with faith. Even if you say it the other way around, you are saying it well. Faith with charity. Uh, So, St. Augustine uh, has this exposition, uh, tractate, uh, so this preaching on John chapter 14. Do you recall how in the Holy Mass, that the priest, after the Lord's Prayer, recalls the words that Jesus said on the night before he died. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Okay, what does that mean? Okay, so the priest is, is recalling these sacred words of our Lord on the night before he died. Peace I leave with you. And why does he say then, my peace, after he said peace the first time? Well, listen to St. Augustine's preaching, because he wants his people to experience the reality and to know the difference between two different types of peace. But why is it said, uh, when he said, peace I leave with you, he did not add my, but when he said, I give unto you, he there made use of it. Is my to be understood even where it is not expressed on the ground that what is expressed once may have reference to it both? Or may it not be there here also that we have some underlying truth that has to be asked and sought for and opened up to those who knock thereat? For what if by his own peace he meant such as to be understood as that which he himself possesses? Whereas the peace which he leaves us in this world may be more properly be termed our peace than his. For he who is altogether without sin has no elements of discord in himself. While the peace we possess, meanwhile, and such that in the midst of it, we have still to be saying, forgive us our trespasses. A certain kind of peace, accordingly, we do possess, inasmuch as we delight in the law of God after the inward man. But it is not a full peace, for we see another law in our members warring against the law of our mind. Okay, St. Augustine then keeps going through this, and he's distinguishing these two levels of peace that, in the, uh, that during this life on earth, we can have a sort of peace, but it's a peace that is still vigilant about different kinds of conflict. And then my peace I give you is the peace that Jesus himself enjoys and that he then shares uh, with the saints in heaven. So St. So Augustine says, you can, you, you can interpret it in other ways, but I think this is what it means. Okay, so peace in terms of how we can have some share of peace now, but ultimately Christ's own peace that he lavishes on the saints in heaven. So in terms of 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 this peace on earth where there's always a sort of conflict, what uses the example of chastity? What is it the chaste man would like? That no lust at all should stir in his members against chastity. He wants peace, but he hasn't yet got it. I mean, when we get to the stage where no lusts at all rise up to be opposed, there won't be any more enemy for us to wrestle with, nor is there in that state any expectation of victory, because the triumph is being celebrated over the enemy already conquered. Listen to the apostle teaching you about that victory. So here's St. Paul. The perishable must put on imperishability, and the mortal put on immortality. Then will come about the saying that is written, death has been swallowed up in victory, Now listen to the Song of Triumph. Where, O death, is your striving? Where, O death, is your sting? St. Augustine now speaks directly to death. Listen to his words. You have stabbed. You have wounded. You have knocked down. But the one who made me was wounded for me. O death, death, the one who made me was wounded for me. And by his death, he conquered you. And that's when those who triumph over you are going to say, Where, O oh, death, is your striving? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? I like to say that, in a sense, you know, we can shout out to death. You're a loser! <laughs> Such a loser, death. That's what we're celebrating during this Easter season. Now, though, you know, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15: "The last enemy to be destroyed is death. There's something of death, something of violence still at work during this life on earth." Okay, so uh, so Saint Augustine then uh, really wants us to be able to see the difference and for us now to seek the peace of the heavenly Jerusalem, to seek the peace of the heavenly Jerusalem. Listen to his, uh, his his way of talking about the peace of Jerusalem. He has blessed your children within you. He's quoting a Psalm. Who has blessed them? He who has established peace on your borders. You all leapt for joy when I said that. Love this peace, my brothers and sisters. We are absolutely delighted when love of peace shouts from your hearts. So how delighted you must be yourselves. I had not yet said anything about it. I had not explained. All I did was read out the verse, and you shouted your joy. What was it that you cried out in you? Love of peace. But who displayed peace before your eyes? Why did you shout? Why else if not because you love it? But how do you love something you can't see? Peace is invisible. What kind of eye equips you so to see it that you love it? If you do not love it, you would not acclaim it so joyfully as soon as it is mentioned. Such are the displays of invisible realities which God puts on for us. How intensely beautiful must that peace be if your understanding of it has pierced you to the heart. What am I to say now about peace and in praise of peace? Your delight in it has run ahead of of any words of mine. I cannot fulfill your expectations. I am unequal to the task. I am too weak. Again, think about the jazz musician. You know, when the jazz musician uh, uh, already has songs that are familiar to the audience, and he starts, you know, playing something that is just greatly loved, the audience will go, "Woo!" You know, just as soon as as soon as it's recognized. Well, because the the, the people there in the church recognize going, Saint Saint Augustine, Augustine, the bishop's going to talk about peace, and uh, and they get very excited and they shout out. Right now, what I want us to do is to turn to this long sermon that is the handout for our talk. Sermon 362 is actually the follow-up of uh, 361. So he begins the sermon by saying, Remembering the promise I made, I have had suitable readings chanted from the gospel and the apostle. Any of you who were present at the previous sermon, you see, will remember that we divided the question proposed to us on the resurrection into a twofold discussion. First, we would discuss, for the sake of those who doubt it, or even those who deny it, whether there is going to be a resurrection of the dead. <clears throat> you mean people would not believe? Well, the Corinthians didn't believe. That's why St. Augustine wrote 1 Corinthians 15. Some people, Some Christians did not believe that we would rise from the dead. The catechism quotes St. Augustine's Enteratio and psalmos, where Augustine says, at no point is the Christian faith more vehemently opposed than the resurrection of the dead. Okay, but you know, it's not just simply non-Christians who oppose it. Frankly, sometimes things in Christian hearts oppose it. St. Augustine knows this. And so he, in the previous sermon, you know, wanted to preach about the very reality of the mystery of the resurrection. So, uh, uh, for the sake of those who doubt it, or even those who deny it, whether there's going to be a resurrection of the dead. Well, after that, we would inquire as best as we could, according to the scriptures, what kind of life the just are going to have in the resurrection. Heaven. What's heaven going to be like? Have you wondered? I mean, this is about forever and ever and ever. And really, people are impoverished today in terms of thinking about heaven. So, you know, during St. Augustine's book six, uh, Life, he, you know, he says that that Amber's really helped him about image of God. And that's really important. Well, another idea that is just really important is heaven and what that peace in heaven really means. OK, so notice in the second paragraph, he says, so let us all beg the Lord together with earnest devotion from the heart, both that I may suitably pay the debt and that you may profitably receive it. Okay, so just in terms of thinking about prayer. And he's reliant upon the people's prayer because Augustine has a duty here and then that he wants the people to have hearts receptive to the preaching. Um, And he goes on, this after all is the bigger question, it must be admitted, but mightier than any difficult question is charity who slaves all of us ought to be so that God who ordered this undertaking may turn all our difficulties into ease and joy. Right, so he reminds them of the, uh, of the different things that he had said uh, the previous day. And if you go to uh, page two, so page two with number four, uh, the translator puts in this little paraphrase, we're still sighing in this life for our true home country. Be that as it may, and then St. Augustine goes, be that as it may, brothers and sisters, in this life we are still wandering exiles you know, poor wayfaring strangers, still sighing in faith, for I know not what kind of home country, and why I know not what kind, seeing that we are its citizens, unless it is because by wandering away into a far country, okay, Luke 15, parable of the prodigal son, we have forgotten our true native land, and can so say about it, I know not what kind of place it is. This amnesia is driven from our hearts by the Lord Christ, king of that country, as he comes to join us in our exile, And by his taking of flesh, his divinity becomes a way for us, so that we may proceed along it through Christ as man and abide in Christ as God. Okay, so then to consider how uh, that Christ is the one who has come into our own uh, farness. Okay, so that way he may bring us close. He may bring us home. He may bring us home. So I don't know if you've ever heard St. Augustine on Amen and Alleluia but it's extremely important and we'll begin at the bottom of page 20 so within the homily this would be called chapter 28 so page 20 he wants people to think about heaven on page 20 chapter 28 it's easier to say that they what there will not be what there will not be in that life than what there will be okay you will say, how do the angels live? Because St. Augustine reads from the gospel about being coming equal with the angels. It's enough for you to know this, that they don't have a life subject to decay. You can be told more easily, you see, what there will not be in that life than what will be there. After all, even I, my brothers and sisters, can briefly run through some of the things with you that will not be found there. And the reason I can do this is that we have experienced these things and know the things that will not be found there. Well, what there is to be found there, we have not yet experienced. For we are walking by faith, not yet by sight. So long as we are in the body, we are wandering abroad in exile from the Lord. So what kind of thing will not be found there? Marrying wives in order to have children, because there will be no death there. There won't be any growing up there, because there won't be any getting old. There won't be taking of nourishment, because there won't be any diminishment. There won't be any business because there won't be any neediness. There won't be any of those praiseworthy works of innocent people which the poverty and the necessities of this life oblige them to engage in. You see, I'm not only saying that there won't be any of the activities there of robbers and usurers, but that there won't be any of the things which innocent people engage in because of the need to relieve human necessities. What does he mean by this? Works of mercy. Okay. Okay. So this is where in terms of uh, he preaches elsewhere about Mary and Martha and how uh, he says to Martha, Martha, you know, what she did was she welcomed the stranger in terms of the the corporal works of mercy. You know, she fed the hungry that she was very hospitable in heaven. What we have, Martha, there'll be no more strangers to welcome. There are no and there will be no more hungry people to feed you will have what Mary already enjoys, being at the feet of the Lord. Okay? So this is where, in terms of just thinking about one Dominican priest who loves St. Therese and knows that I love love St. Therese, said to me about St. Therese's comment, I'll spend my heaven doing good on earth. And he just replied, that's a part-time job. Because even in terms of the saints, they're not going to be doing good on earth for people who are needy, okay? So just to be able to think about how it's, it's not that. It will be a perpetual Sabbath, St. Augustine says, you know, a perpetual one, an eternal one. There will be inexpressible peace and quiet, quite impossible to describe. But as I've said, to describe it, all we are reduced to saying what won't be found there. It is to that peace and quiet that we are wending our way For that, we are spiritually born again, just as we are born, you see, in the flesh for toil and hardship. So we are spiritually born again for peace and quiet as he cries out to us. Indeed, come to me, all you that labor and are overburdened, and I will give you rest. Here he feeds us. There he perfects us. Here he makes promises. There he keeps them. Here he communicates in the heart. uh, There he makes it all clear and manifest communicates in code. There he makes it all clear and manifest. But when in that state of bliss, we have been saved and brought to perfection, both in spirit and in body, there will be none of these activities, not even any of those which are to be praised here below in the good works of Christians. Okay, so then he talks about the corporal works of mercy. Um, You won't even have that. Are you going to take in the stranger and foreigner where all are living in their home country? Will you visit the sick where all enjoy the best of imperishable health? Bury the dead where they live forever. Okay, reconcile the quarrelling where all is peace. All right now, twenty nine. This is uh, the most famous portion. So, what will be going on there? Haven't I already said that's easier for me to say? That won't be then. That won't be than What will be happening there? This I do know, brothers and sisters, that we are not going to slumber and do nothing. Because sleep too is something that has been given to the soul as a support for its defects. Sometimes people think, in terms of rest and peace, rest and peace. That it's just you know just a sleep where, you know, it's just sleeping. No, 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 no. There's a life, a fullness of life in heaven. Fullness of life that's beyond the activities of this earth. Indeed, the frail body will not tolerate unremitting attention activating its mortal senses unless the senses are doused and this frailty is repaired to enable it to endure this very activation. The reason why we sleep during this life on earth is that we get tired and we need basically to shut down in some way um, and to, to recuperate and then we can work again. We don't need that in heaven. Okay, so there won't be any sleep there. After all, where there's no death, there won't either be the image of death because sleep is the image of death. Now, however, that you should allow the fear of boredom to creep up on you when you are told that you will be awake all the time and won't be doing anything. (laughs) I can say, and how indeed it's going to be, I cannot say, because I can't even see it yet. Still, there's something I can say without impudence, because I'm saying from the scriptures what our activity will consist of there. Our whole activity will consist of amen and Alleluia. What do you say, brothers and sisters? I can see that you hear and are delighted. But don't let yourselves again be depressed by the flesh-bound thought that if any of you were to stand and say Amen and Alleluia all day long, you would droop with fatigue and boredom, and you will drop off to sleep in the middle of your words and long to keep quiet. And for that reason, you might suppose it is a life you can do well without, not at all desirable, and might say to yourselves, Amen and Alleluia. We're going to say that forever and ever. Who will be able to endure it. <laughs> so I'll tell you if I can, as best I can. It isn't in fleeting sounds that we shall be saying Amen and Alleluia, but with the affection of the mind and heart. After all, what does Amen mean? And what's Alleluia? Amen. It's true. Alleluia. Praise God. So now, God is unchangeable truth without defect, without advancement, without loss, without gain, without the slightest tendency to falsehood, perpetual and stable, and always remaining imperishable. On the other hand, the things we are involved here in this created world and this life are no more than the symbols of things signified by material bodies, things in which we walk by faith. But when we see face to face, what we now see through a mirror and a riddle, we shall then say with quite a different and inexpressibly different feeling of love, it's true. And when we say this, we shall, of course, be saying amen, but with a kind of never satisfied satisfaction, because there will be nothing lacking, you see. That's why complete satisfaction. But because what is not lacking we will always be giving delight. That's why, if one can put, so put it, it will be an unsatisfied satisfaction. So just as you will be insatiably satisfied with the truth, so you will be saying with insatiable truth, amen. But now who can possibly say what it is like, what eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it come up, up into the heart of man? And so because we shall see the truth without any distaste and with perpetual delight and gaze upon it with the most evident certainty, we shall be fired with love of this truth and cling to it with a sweet and chaste embrace, not a non-bodily one, of course. And so we shall also praise him with the same kind of voice and say, Alleluia. All the citizens of that city you see will be urging each other to equal heights of praise with the most ardent charity toward one another and toward God. And so they will be saying, Hallelujah, because they will be saying, Amen. So that in heaven, there is the beatific vision, that Jerusalem uh, vision of peace, that the saints will be able to see God for who he is, and that, that this everlasting vision We'll be, able to, we'll be able to say, amen, it's true. The thing that we believed in faith during this time of walking, not, uh, not by sight, but by faith, will be able to see because that's God, united to God, united to God, say, amen, it's true. In fact, for St. Augustine, even the bodily eyes of the resurrected body will be able to know something of God's presence. And he uses the example of the immaterial soul. Okay, so if I look at somebody's face and somebody then nods at me and then uh, I know I can't see that immaterial soul, I see a body, but because you know, he's alive and, and so I, can, I know that the immaterial soul is, the, is there because of the recognition, the thought process, the smile, the nod, all these things. I don't see the immaterial soul, but I know there's an immaterial soul there. Well, in the same way, in the resurrection, everything will be able, to our bodily eyes, to announce, God is here. God is here. Not just simply the immaterial soul of a human being, but everything with the, with the resurrected eyes, bodily eyes, will be able to announce, God is here. And then, in terms of the our immaterial soul, to be united to God in the vision of peace in the immaterial soul, to be united to God in the vision of peace. And so we have that certainty on all the different levels, that certainty, amen, it is true. And then our reaction, because of our delight, is to praise God, hallelujah. Praise God, it's true, praise God. And that is the life of heaven and its peace. Thank you.